0: Maybe your Bible automatically falls open to Job at this point, but er, record scratch, change the script, First John this morning, uh, companion message that goes along well with our study in Job, but a little something different this morning. Was spending some time studying in Job this week and um, was burdened along these lines as well. Uh, it's one of my favorite passages in First John, and um, when I was growing up, I don't know about you folks, but it was not uncommon, folks, to say, uh, what's your life verse? Um, I, I'm, I'm, not to, I'm not denigrating that, I'm just not totally sure what that means at this point in my life at 48, but that's, that's okay. Um, and so I, I had two uh, that I picked, because I'm a rebel, and why just pick one? Um, and one of them was Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee, though no man pursueth, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And it really was born out of a heart of mine to not live in fear. I kind of made it my motto, no fear, Um, tried not to be afraid of things, and uh, pretty quickly realized, even as as a teenager, young person, that you can't control fear. Uh, you can't just shut off fear, and so I would always attack fear. If I was afraid of something, I would just go after it, and if I was afraid to do it, then I'd go do it, and just try to face fears that way, and found very little satisfaction in that, and it wasn't until years later when I came to First John chapter 4, and, and I don't remember when this was, but um, it was like God, the Holy Spirit just flicked the light bulb on. I'm sure you've all had those moments where suddenly you're like, you have clarity, and you're like, oh. Um, yes, Proverbs 28 one is absolutely true. When you're wicked, you run, you have, a, you have a, a conscience in you, and if you're God's child, you don't just have a conscience, you have a Holy Spirit convicting you, and so you live afraid, the wicked flee, the no one pursueth. But also to understand the real contrast to fear wasn't courage, but love. Now what does that have to do with Job? Well, we're going to hit Job, and uh, we'll be back in Job again for sure. Uh, but we're going to find ourselves in what is really the second cycle of speeches. And it'll be, begins in chapter 15 with Eliphaz. He's the oldest guy speaking. And uh, he actually, at, at one point in his speech, says, we're as old as your dad. Uh, and, so, and so they had uh, several years on Job and uh, were men that should have been noted for their wisdom. And he's speaking out of that to him. But he said something stunning to Job. Eliphaz will, when we're back in, Job, in chapter 15, And he'll actually say this to them, you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. That's a pretty sharp accusation to Job. Eliphaz is telling Job, because of Job's questioning, Job's struggling, that Job is killing worship. Job is killing a right reverence of God. And Job's going to respond to that when he starts speaking in Job 16, and he'll actually say this, he'll say, I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. In other words, Job's saying, if I was in your shoes, I would actually know what to say that it would be comforting. You give me no comfort, but I would know how to comfort somebody. But then he speaks to his own pain in verse 6 of chapter 16. He says, if I speak, though, my pain is not assuaged, and if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? What he's saying is this, is that when we go through seasons of pain, suffering, uh, terrible times in our lives we begin to learn how to comfort others. Peter picks up on this, right? Or Paul does. Comfort others with the same comfort you've been comforted. You learn uniquely when you go through dark valleys how to shine the light for others in a dark valley. How to comfort others that are hurting. But on the other hand, what Job is also saying is, while I would know how to comfort someone else, my own words can't comfort me. And he's picked up on that theme earlier where he says, I've got nothing left to say to myself. It is so hard to preach to your own heart when you are suffering and in pain. I, I would say this, you, we will all eventually get exhausted. I had a friend of mine call me this week and, and um, reached out, and, and he and I are going to connect on a more consistent basis, but he's in the midst of doing ministry, and he said something along these lines, Steve, I... I think I've preached to my heart so much I, I don't have, even have words to say anymore, and I've realized I need to hear them from somebody else. That's what Job is saying. So Job's three friends are here, and there's a fourth guy that's going to show up, and they're ostensibly speaking comfort, but meanwhile they're accusing things even as serious as Job and your suffering and in your pain, you're destroying worship of God. And Job's saying, I I would know how to comfort, but I can't even comfort my own heart. What am I supposed to do? Why is it this way? Why can't Job's friends comfort him? Now they say we can't comfort Job because Job is too hard-headed and he won't listen and he's a rebel. We know that's not true. So we are driven to ask, why is it they really can't comfort? What hinders them from not being able to comfort Job? And we could hang all kinds of things like bad theology, um, uh, their own personal sin struggles, uh, the way they view the world. We can hang all kinds of things on it, but Job hung something on it significant, and he got to the heart of it way back when we were in chapter 6. He says it this way in verse 21, You have now become nothing. You see my calamity and are afraid. When we start to dig into First John here in, this, in, in a moment, you're going to hear something from the text, and, and as I've thought about it, I've um, been serving here at Kenley Road for 15 years. Ten years consistently preaching. If there's something I've said tons of times, and for years I would think I shouldn't repeat myself. And then I, when I'm reading through the New Testament, Paul says, now you've heard this before, but I'm going to say it again. And I'm like, oh, and my own heart needs to repeat it. If there's one message I feel like God has woven into my life, uh, from the time I was a child trying to fight against fears, not having fear, um, Trying to push against fear of man by not caring what other people think, trying to push against fear by um, literally fighting any bully I could find in school. You bullied someone, I was looking to give you a black eye. I was on mission because I was not going to be afraid. Right to realizing that that all of that doesn't deal with my fears. To coming to First John to realize this truth: the opposite of fear is not courage; it's love. It's love. And if I ever really want to wrestle my fears to the ground, then what I have to do is be dominated by the overwhelming divine love of God. So Job and his friends, when Job's friends cannot comfort him, they can't help him, they're not helping him, they're just attacking him. When Job tells us that you're afraid of my suffering, he's telling us something critically important. They can't help him because they don't love him. They think they do. Nobody else came. Nobody else is willing to sit there with him. Nobody else is willing to speak these kinds of things to him. So they think they love him, but they don't. They are afraid of him. Eliphaz's fear, in particular, has created this debilitating narrative about Job. He's concocted a story in his mind about who Job is and in his suffering. And because he has manufactured this story out of his fear, he judges Job and he treats him harshly, and he cannot speak grace, hope, or life into his pain. Let me, let me key in on that. In 1829, uh, the whaling ship, the Essex, was captained by a 29-year-old young man named George Pollard. They were set out from Nantucket, Massachusetts, uh, and were whaling, and then they were struck by a sperm whale in the Pacific Ocean, And the Essex went to the bottom of the sea some 1,500 miles west of the Galapagos Islands. Now, if you're like me and you don't have a mental image of the globe, just think this way, middle of nowhere. Ship goes down, men are stranded in boats. Surviving men are set adrift in whaling ships. They have just enough provisions for 60 days. They could sail to the closest islands to them. It was clear they would be able to make them. But there were rumors, rumors that the tribespeople on those islands were cannibals. And so they were terrified of that, figured they would never survive there. And so then they thought, well, we could sail to the next closest set of islands. The next closest set of islands that were also rumored to be inhabited by cannibals. They were unknown. Nobody knew who lived there. Nobody knew if anybody lived there. They could be uninhabited. But the rumors are there. The fears are there. And they began to construct a narrative. If we sail for these islands, if we go into the unknown, we're going to die. So they convinced George Pollard to sail four times further, over 4,000 miles to South America. They have enough provisions for 60 days. They're in four small whaling ships. We're going to make a 4,000-mile trek. Led by the crew's fears, this 29-year-old young man is controlled by their fears and instead of leading them as he knew to do, he gave in to their fears out of fear of man and he agreed with this plan. And so they set out attempting to make the 4,000-mile journey. You see, when we are afraid, we all become authors. Whether you think of yourself as a writer or not, when we're afraid, we all become authors. We write stories in our brains of horror and terrible things. Our fears deny truth and reason. And whatever story is most believable to us, that's the one we seize upon. And unfortunately, when we are in moments of fear, the stories we seize upon the most tend to be the most lurid and horrific we tend to be afraid of the worst. Now maybe you're like me and that's the way you deal with life. Maybe that's your flesh bent like mine. You go to the dentist, had a little toothache. You prepare yourself to hear root canal implant. Because you figure you can handle anything less than that anyway. So if you can work out and be able to deal with root canal implant, then whatever it is can't be that bad. You go to the doctor, and, and you're, you know you're going to have some tests. You begin to, you know, WebMD, where everything ends in brain tumor, by the way. And you're convinced, like, if I can handle the worst news, then I'll be able to handle it. You concoct out of your fear the, what's the worst possible scenario. And if I can deal with that, then I can deal with life. When you and I are living in control by fear, we become master narrators, And we tend to latch on the most lurid and the most horrific. So the most lurid and horrific thing to these guys that have literally just watched a huge ship, a fish destroy their ship. Uh, This is actually the story that prompted Melville to ultimately write Moby Dick. This is the true account that led to that fictional account. And so they've seen this. So the most lurid thing to them, the most horrific, the most imagination-capturing thing to them is that cannibals would eat them. And so they make a decision that defies logic, defies reason, defies anything normal, anything they knew as experienced sailors, and we're going to make a 4,000-mile voyage with lack of supplies, 60 days of supplies, and we're going to make it, and they never, most of them never made it. And George Pollard the captain is so afraid of mutiny, so afraid of what these guys would do, he goes along with it cuz he concocts in his brain a narrative that they're going to hate him, reject him, hurt him, do something to him, so I better go along with them. When you and I are afraid, we become master narrators. We tend to cap- to latch onto the most lurid thing. They were rescued months later, out plucked out of the ocean, only tw- only 8 Of the twenty survived. And they had survived by resorting to cannibalism. You want to talk about being prophetic. That which they had were afraid of had come upon them. Fear in relationships creates false narratives. These men would most likely have lived had Captain Pollard led out of truth and not fear. It was later proven that the island supposedly inhabited by cannibals, these tribespeople had only reacted when people had tried to come and enslave them and had been wonderful hosts to others who had not come trying to enslave them. Twenty guys showing up in little fishing boats, they would have known were not coming to enslave them. Had they sailed to the other islands, the other island was uninhabited, had natural flowing water and plenty of resources. Their fears is what led to their death. The false narratives that they created led to the death. And this week, we're going to step away from Job because we want to let this truth soak into our hearts. Fear creates a narrative that prevents us from loving the way God has called us to love. Why weren't Job's friends able to minister to him? Because they were afraid. Saved people, though, saved people, know they are loved by God and they long to love him, see him, and show Him by loving others. 1 John chapter 4, let me read to you from the text of Scripture this morning. I'm going to start in verse 16, read down through verse 21. 1 John, a book all about knowing your salvation, and he gave three tests in chapter 2, and he keeps cycling back to them. One of the tests was loving God and others, and this is when he is really unpacking that part of it. But 1 John chapter 4, just our section this morning, says this in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so how can we understand this? Well, we'll just take it verse by verse. First of all, this love made perfect and to understand it, if you see there in verse 16, uh, it says, so we have come. Um, and, and when he says so here, he's coming toward the end of an argument. So he is pointing back to arguments before that he laid out. And so I just want to take you back to verse 12. Uh, it's the closest that he's coming to. He says this, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What, what does he mean by that? John is not satisfied with people simply making claims of the presence of God or saying that they know Christ. But John in his epistle is incredibly passionate about people proving it. Don't just tell me, show me. Uh, Let your walk match your talk. Where does the rubber meet your road? Uh, Prove to me that you really know God and that you know Christ. And what he's telling them is that none of us has ever seen God. If we love one another, God is then dwelling in us, and his love is perfecting us. This is what he's telling us. You want people to see God today? He should see his love coming out of you. If you know God, his love is in you and should be evidenced from your life. If you don't love God and others, you don't know him is what he's ultimately telling us. He's coming after this mindset of people that want to say, I'm saved. But the reality is all they did was pray a prayer prayer sometime along the way, and there's no evidence of the abiding presence of Christ in them. This term there in verse 12, the perfected, um, is ultimately the word that means matured. It means it's come to full completion god manifests his love toward us ultimately in the death of his own son how do we know that god loves us he proved it to us and while we were yet sinners christ died for us jesus died for very lost unlovable sinful people he takes rotten people and makes them his children he he doesn't make pretty people prettier he doesn't take happier people and make them happier he makes dead people live he takes disgusting people and makes them acceptable And so when he sets his love upon us, he's setting his love upon people that don't deserve it at all. He transforms these people then into a people who love him and love like him. And this completes the circle of divine love. And so as he flows forth, he says, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And ultimately it leads to this. So we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in them. And it's by this that this love is now made mature with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. So as he is, also we are in this world. This is what he's telling us is that there's this cycle. And so what it begins with is God loves us and he loved us when we were sinners. He loved us when we were wicked. He loved us when we were undeserving. There are few things that do more damage to the concept of the love that we have for God and the love that he has for us other than the heresy that you and I play some critical part in our salvation. We don't. The only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin we need saving from. That's what we bring to the table. And he sets his love upon us. And when he saves us, then he begins to transform us. And it's like this huge circle. And so as he's transforming us, as he's changing us, he puts his spirit into us. And his spirit's presence in, uh, in us begins to transform us and make us into truly loving people. I'm not talking about loving for what it gets us. I'm not talking about loving because it feels comfortable. With us. I'm not talking about loving, lovable people. Listen, we all like cute puppies. Like, there are people in our lives that are easy to love. There are situations that are easy to love. There are circumstances that are easy to love. But Jesus tells us all through his Gospels that that's not the test of true love. Even the Pharisees, the religious elite, greet their friends in the street. Hey, how are you doing, friend? He says that doesn't show your love. That's easy to do. What shows your love is how well you love the enemies and the orphans and the strangers. In other words, the dispossessed, the people you don't like being around, and the people you don't even know. How do you love those? Because that's God's love. And we understand it. That's who we are. And so he loves us. He puts his spirit on us so that he begins to transform us. And we are on mission. We're on a journey of sanctification as we go through this life of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, which is to say, in this particular context, to become more and more loving. You ever been around someone and it seems like the older they get, the more ornery they get? that's a clear sign they're not changing to be like jesus now it's not just about gray heads or no head no hair heads right it's maturity in jesus like as you grow in christ if you've been saved for any length of time people should be able to see in you coming out of you you love more like jesus now than you used to because he's changing you and so we have this cycle that's going but now we come to this moment and here's the moment in time that we are at jesus is not walking the earth he's not you and i have not seen him and neither has anybody else on tv or radio right there's been no fresh vision and yet god wants his love to be displayed and he doesn't he he is not satisfied This is God's plan, not my plan. He is not satisfied that his love would only be displayed through me telling you or people reading it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, or he proved his love to us and why we were sinners. He is not satisfied for that because what he intends to do is as he has shown love and put his love upon people, as he's filled them with the Spirit, and now he's put his love in them, and as they are being transformed by his love, people begin to see Jesus coming out of you and me. That's what he means by it being perfected or matured. Now, God didn't have to do it that way. But he's chosen to, and now for close to 2,000 years, this world has not had the visible, physical Jesus in their presence. What have they had? (laughs) Uh Oh, they've had Christians to show them what Jesus' love looks like. And suddenly I begin to realize, I'm not sure I always do such a hot job showing Jesus love toward others, that they might see him. And so John is telling us that God is seeking to perfect his love to mature it. Perfected love is the full circle fulfillment of love. We have been loved by Christ and it's shown to be a full love, listen now, when we love others. A proof point of salvation is the outflow of divine love. It is sacrificial initiating towards strangers and enemies pursuing and active. Let's just think of it this way, right? Like if we were to go to Ephesians where God's talking to husbands and wives and he says this to, to husbands, Men, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Now here's what's hard when you try to unpack that with husbands, and I am one, I are one, right? So I'm preaching my own heart here. Um, I, I've, I've yet to meet a husband worth his salt that if some intruder broke into the home, you wouldn't lay your life down for your wife, right? Um, I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to fight to the death. You're going to have to kill me to get to my wife, right? Don't ask me to change another diaper, now, that doesn't apply to me. That's why it's easy, you know, because now I've got three teenagers. But I'm, I'm going back. I'm go- Steve's going back 16 years. Like, Right? But don't ask me. Don't ask me to have to enter into the dishwasher. Don't call me. To, don't tell me of another light bulb that got burned out, something else that broke. I got back from Kentucky this week, and in three days, three days, had to fix my upstairs air conditioner, my living room clock, and my garbage disposal. I mean, that's life, isn't it? It's like bring on eternity. This world is winding down. You've got to be kidding me. And so, like, I can feel it in my family. Like, they don't want to tell me one more thing broke. And he says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. We realize it's not just an extravagant sacrifice. Ask any woman on the planet. She's like, what if your husband never tells you I love you, but every year in your anniversary you get a brand new diamond ring? Thanks. How about some daily affection? understanding appreciation and love okay so here's my point with that when he tells us when i'm telling you that we are to love like christ loves we need to yes think of it an extravagant sacrifice yes we need to be sacrificial but i'm telling you it becomes the much more nuts and bolts of our daily lives the way we deal with people and so he's telling us love is made perfect or matured or completed let's press on to verse 18 here it's love or fear here's the the verse He says it this way in verse 18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, or the King James calls it torment. Whoever fears has not been perfected or matured in love. He gives us the negative of the same truth. So what do we do with people who aren't loving? Well, what he's telling us is if you're not loving, you're actually fearful. That's interesting because we'd like to think the opposite of love is hatred. Just like we like to think the opposite of fear is courage. This is one of those moments where we're going to submit our minds and our hearts to what the Bible says about those things or not. And what the Bible's telling us is that really the opposite of of fear is love and the opposite of love is fear. And so the degree to which I'm afraid is the degree to which I do not love. Oh, so when Steve's strutting around his middle school and his 14-year-old punk self with his jean jacket, with pentagrams drawn all over it, carrying my rolls of quarters in my pocket, and decking Andy, because he tripped this nerd kid in the mud puddle, and somebody needed to teach Andy a lesson. And so I felt like I was God's appointed system of justice. And I'm convincing myself, see, that's showing how unfearful I am. No, it, it actually wasn't. It was actually fear controlling me. Well, how? Because I was afraid of how I'd be seen, how I'd be perceived, who I was, if I'd be rejected. I was going to control that moment with my power. What John is telling me is actually I wasn't loving anybody in that moment. I wasn't loving the kid in the mud, and I certainly wasn't loving the kid I was hitting. Now, that's easy for me to diagnose when I look back at my younger self. It's much more complex when I get into my adult years. It's much more complex when I, when I would sit in a ministry setting at a camp I was working at. And there were all these kids, first week of staff training, there was all these kids from different Bible colleges sitting in different places. And there would always be a space or two at a table. We had this place called the Pines. I don't know why we called it the Pines. We should have called it the Mosquitoes and the Flies. Um, but it was the Pines. Everything was the Pines, but but... Supposed to sit out there and I and I got my plate of food and I turned around and I didn't know any of these people. I really didn't know any of them. And I went to college late because I was such a wretch. I, I kind of got started late in life getting traction. And so I'm older than all these kids and I look around and I'm like, I, I don't know any of them. I I didn't want to just impose myself. I didn't need their approval. And so I just went sat by myself. And I was quite content to do that. Now I thought in my mind that was because I wasn't controlled by fear of man. I didn't care what anybody thought of me. That's what I absolutely believed. Why would I impose myself into their... They're a friend group. Why would I do that with them? And the reality was I wasn't loving God or any of them. Because Jesus' love would be what? Can you imagine Jesus in that situation? Do you think Jesus would just go sit by himself? Uh, That's not the Jesus I read about in the Gospels. It was self-love. It wasn't loving them. It was fear. The reality is where you and I are fearful, particularly relationally, it is going to reveal to us where we are not loving. Fear is a tremendous method of control because of its torment, because of its threat. When this torment or punishment is present, it's a powerful indicator of the lack of perfected or completed love. I remember the last time ADT came to my door to try to sell me an alarm system. Have they ever visited your house? They show up at your door, they knock on the door, you open the door, and like the, literally the first thing the guy said is, um, good afternoon, I'm so-and-so. I said, hi, he said, what's your name? Steve. Mr. Steve, are you aware there were this many robberies in your neighborhood over the last year? That's like... That's the, like we, went, we, like, we just went from introductions to I might get robbed, right? And there's this many assaults, murders um, in your neighborhood. And he said, do you have a wife or daughter? And I, I was like, bro, conversation just ended. I don't handle real well people trying to scare me into things. And that's what they're trying to do. That's their sales method. They terrify you and to convince you to get ADT. That's what they were trying to do. And I'm sure the other ones do. I'm not trying to shoot at ADT. If you have ADT, God bless you. Do what you gotta do, run your household, whatever you got. I got you got ADT, I got Smith and Wesson. We we all right, right? Like whatever we got to do, we got to do. But I just don't handle well somebody controlling me with fear. That's why it was so terrifying when my wife had cancer. There was nothing there for me to wrestle to the ground. I couldn't change it. I was filled with an intense fear that I couldn't control. You ever been in those moments relationally? Not just talking about losing someone, maybe you have relational conflict with someone. We were even talking about this this morning in, in Sunday school class and it's so re- somebody gave the answer so resonated with me that sometimes there's fear and conflict because of how this could get bigger and you could lose relationship and it go wider and collateral damage and all this kind of stuff. Man, I've been, you ever been afraid that way in relationships with people? And John is telling us when we are ruled by that, we're not loving. We begin to create these narratives in our minds why use such a sales tactic why try to control because fear is torment i don't know about you i remember growing up in churches and man i was i was scared right it was like it, i heard some sermons whoo like like here's the reality and i and i don't i don't blush at this and, and most of you guys know me this way listen you we are all born sinners in desperate need of a savior god has loved us and sent his son to die for us You must repent of your sin and put your faith in him. And if you will do that, he rescues you wonderfully, makes you his own. You are safe and secure in the arms of Christ. Underneath of the everlasting arms, you are secure. And if you die, you will open your eyes in the presence of Jesus. And if you don't do that, there is judgment. Eternal judgment in hell. That's the reality. But man, I heard some sermons where they were like, Man, when you die, just so you know, you're going to stand before God and at the judgment seat, there's going to be like a big screen. Actually, I actually had a preacher say a big screen and everything you've ever done, thought, or said is going to be portrayed. And i remember going to be like, what? Man, let's get right with Jesus now. People ask me, when did you get saved? I, I ultimately believe I got saved when I was nine. The, re, the, the answer is like every week from like five to 15. That was terrified. There is an effectiveness at times to controlling people with fear. I think we all are aware enough, you you watch the news, read the news, but aren't we all at least aware enough that a controlling message of media is fear? Anger. That's how we get, that's how we get, you don't like, you don't make it as as a radio talk show guy if you're not angry and afraid. Everything is the slippery slope. It torments us. It punishes us. Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, are afraid. They are afraid. They're afraid because if Job is right, then unspeakable suffering could happen to anybody. And that's really at the core of it. See, Job is this righteous man, and if Job could lose all ten kids, lose his wife, lose his goods, lose his money, lose his health, if Job has done nothing wrong and that could happen to him, then what in the world could happen to you or me? And so out of that fear, they create a false narrative. Then there's no way that Job is righteous in this. He must have done something to deserve this. And so then if I can simply avoid doing what Job did, then I'm safe. And if I can convince Job to repent, then Job will be okay. That's the way this needs to work. That's what will deliver me from... I can be the master of my own fate. We even talked about that as we were working through Job. One of the ways that manifests is when we quickly judge other people. We'll look at somebody that's been divorced and think, well, they did really make an unwise decision I would never have made in who they married. We see someone with a handicapped or disabled child. And we think, well, I wonder what the mother ate. Or what medicines they gave or didn't give. I would have done that differently. Right? Right? It's the same narrative. It's the same controlling, fear-driven narrative that results in this judgmental perspective of others. And listen to me, you cannot be afraid of them and love them because he said, perfect love casts out fear. And so what do Job's friends? They treat him harshly by withholding grace and not listening to him. They don't actually take the time to listen to what their friend is saying. They think evil of him. They judge his motives and his words with these hyper-inspecting lenses to point out any kind of failure. They, they, each of them has their own idea. Um, Zophar, I think, was the one that thought, well, it must have been some kind of financial mishandling or embezzlement. Bildad said, I don't know what your, your kids did, but clearly whatever they did was worse than what you did. Kind of insinuating it was the same kind of sin. Eliphaz seems to indicate it might just be something hidden in his heart that he's done that God is exposing but they all are convinced they all think evil of him and they all construct this fear driven narrative this lurid narrative that gives an excuse for why ten children are dead his wife has abandoned him he's lost everything and he's scraping maggots off of his skin because that's the only way they can process it they use theology as a weapon instead of as a balm a scalpel, a light, or food for the hurting. What is it like when you or I are in the throes of relational fear? Fear of rejection, fear of revenge, fear of abandonment, fear of attack, fear of not understanding, or fear of not being understood. What do we tend to do? We all tend to do this. We tend to become hypocrites to fit in. So we hide who we really are. That way I don't have to be afraid of rejecting me. I'm just like you. Fear of man was a powerful uh, hindrance in my own life. I I remember one season, I pretending to like a genre of music, bluegrass, that my boss liked because he liked bluegrass. I'm not saying there's no bluegrass I like. I mean, uh, like all my extended family is from West Virginia. Like it's kind of in your genetic DNA that every once in a while you got to hear a banjo being played. Like it's just why it's hardwired. But I have a limit Right, like Ricky Skaggs, you know, um, First Aid Kit, which is actually a Swedish girl group, but sings like bluegrass folksy music. Like, like I'm, I'm good. I got about, I've, I've now discovered, I got about thirty minutes of bluegrass in me. That's what I got. I got about thirty minutes. I'm good. I've hit peak capacity, and I'm ready to move on to something else. If you love bluegrass, God bless you. That doesn't offend me. Love it, embrace it, enjoy it. Hoedown, whatever you do, I don't care. But here was my problem. I'm like pretending to like bluegrass so somebody that likes bluegrass will like me more. That's hypocrisy. You ever act like you like something that somebody else likes just because you're afraid that they won't like you? You do things out of a fear You you cease to be open spiritually. Let's just go deeper. You cease to be open or transparent about your spiritual struggles or what's going on in your life because you're afraid of them rejecting you. So you pretend to have arrived when you haven't. You pretend to be something you aren't. You pretend like, like everything's okay when it's not because you're afraid of being rejected or thought poorly of. You refuse to disciple other people because deep down you know, quite frankly, you're not really walking with Jesus. And you're afraid You you don't lead. You're afraid to lead because you're afraid it will expose who you really are. You withhold love and affection from people. You withdraw from people. You use love and affection to manipulate people. You become emotionally abusive because your love can be earned or lost. You're controlled by fear. You tend to think evil of other people. You create a narrative in your mind about what their real motives are. Well, I know they said this, but you know what? I bet it's really this. You blame other people for your struggles. Listen, saved people know that they are loved by God and they long to love Him, to see Him, and show Him by loving others. But there is no fear in love. They are the direct opposites. Oh, I could have gone there let's go to the next passage what's he say next verse 19 he reminds us we are loved we love because he first loved us i love these quotes from these guys charles spurgeon nothing binds me to my lord like a strong belief in his changeless love or oswald chambers the love of god is not created it is his nature i real this one by jerry bridges god's unfailing love for us is an objective fact affirmed over and over in the scriptures it is true whether we believe it or not our doubts do not destroy god's love nor does our faith create it it originates in the very nature of god who is love and it flows to us through our union with his beloved son john continues to remind us that this expression of perfect love mature love is both possible and does desirable excuse me because the love of god already is expressed toward us as his children in other words we can love because we've been loved it's not viewed as a means to an end we don't love god to get more love from him john is super relational in his epistles and his gospel he seems concerned that we become we might become formulaic in our approach to this what I mean by that is this, while our love is action, while our love is beneficial, perfect love is desirable, it cannot be reduced to a simplified list. Let me picture it in a marriage. It would be like asking a person, do you love your spouse? Do you love your husband or wife? And I'm saying, well, I'm really struggling with it. I, I'm not sure I, I love them. Maybe I, I, they would even use words like, I've fallen out of love, or I don't really love them. And so then what you do is you give them a list of things to do. Buy them flowers, learn what their mate likes or doesn't like, do special dates with them, show interest in them, do hobbies with them, spend time with them, and so forth. These are good, and they should be done, whether there's feeling or not. But if at the end of that, what if they did that for a year, and then their spouse found this list, and they realized all it was was a checklist? Then they would say, at minimum, these acts of love are weak. Do you really love me? If the only way you could love me is by checking off a list? In the life of the church, we could say it the same way. You want to love other people in the life of the church? Be here. Show up. Be involved in each other's lives. Serve joyfully and sacrificially. Make meals when it's available. Spend time with people you don't know well. Be grateful to those that serve. Pray with each other. But just like any relationship, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in the life of the church, if all this is a checklist, it can be weak because it's just list-keeping. In the midst of this significant benefit of love that there's no fear. John reminds us that it's only possible and desirable because God has first loved us. Listen, folks, we love well when we are drowning in his love for us. We meditate on him knowing the hairs of our head. On him promising to never leave us or forsake us. We meditate on the fact that He shows me grace in my weakness, in my sinfulness, and in my immaturity. I meditate on the truth that He has chosen me, pursued me, and rescued me. I meditate that we are part of the mission of the kingdom building that goes beyond this globe or even my life. I meditate on how He makes even my daily work worthy of worship because I do it in grace and the power of the Spirit and making Him known. Drown us in your love, God, that we might love others. We love because we've been loved. In other words, what John is telling us is we love poorly. Yes, because we're controlled by fear. But we love poorly because we have forgotten our first love. That we have been loved well. You know, I think it's ironic because in all the midst of fears that so many people have of will I be liked, loved, or accepted... Deep down, we actually all think that we're pretty lovable people. And it's almost like we act like God's love set on us wasn't that big of a deal. Because we don't live in the reality of what wretches we actually are. And how undeserving we actually are. And so that how overwhelming his love actually is toward us. Saved people know they are loved by God and they long to love him See him and show him by loving others. And in verses 20 and 21. He says this, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. How do we know we're consumed with this love? How do we know that our lives are impacted and consumed by this divine love that John is expounding? How would we know that we are overwhelmed, drowning in the affections of God? Well, manifesting the same truth of Christ in the Gospels, it's how well do we love one another? You tell me you love God? Show me by how well you love others. Or, to put it much more harshly and directly, stop telling me you love God when you love others so poorly. the opposite of fear is love and what he tells us is either you love or you hate now that's a truth that that i think lots of people struggle with they like to think of it there's actually a middle ground here's the people i love here's the people i hate and maybe you know, like they maybe they're raised in such a way don't ever say you hate somebody and um don't ever, you know, so hate actions i hate abortion I hate terrorism. I hate school shootings. And so hate behavior or sins, but don't hate people. So some of them are even uncomfortable with that. So they kind of got a category. So whatever your category is, that's a step away from saying I hate them. Right? Whatever that is. So you got love over here. You got these people you really despise, but you don't hate. And then you got a whole middle ground you don't really care very much about. I, I'm just ambivalent. Or I guess I care. And these tend to be the people you do life with a lot that aren't your family and aren't your close friends. In other words, people you tend to sit in church with or you live in the same neighborhood with, but you don't know really well and you don't hang out a lot with. But what John is telling us is there's not that middle ground, it's one or the other. It's love or hate. And that's his language. So whatever, and I'm not, I'm not shooting at Maxine John's, but it was my grandma that said, don't say you hate somebody, right? So despite what Maxine said, what my grandma said, I love dearly, there are people out there I really hate, whether I ever want to use the words or not. And it's everybody I don't love. It's everybody that I think I'm just ambivalent towards. I don't get that option. I'm called by the presence of divine love to love these people. And how? How am I supposed to love them? The way Jesus has loved me. Sacrificial and initiating and affectionate and tender and kind and pursuing. Love doesn't say, I'm going to wait till you say you love me before I say I love you. That's not, in other words, love doesn't sit back and wait to be pursued. That's not love. Aren't you thankful that's not the way Jesus loved you? Because guess what? If he had sat back and waited, you would never have come. Never. And so we're being called in this moment to live in this this kind of honesty. The degree to which I live in relational fear is the degree to which I'm ruled by selfishness. The balanced scales of my heart are revealed to either be ruled by love or fear. A mark of a true believer is one who has been set free to love and now expresses their love to God in a most profound way through their love of others. It's so significant that a persistent lack of love toward others would call your salvation into question. It's an oxymoron to say an unloving Christian. It doesn't exist. Then you don't know Jesus. Do you even know God? Your ability to love, your capacity to love, your call to love is a direct result of the gospel of Christ. His death, burial, and resurrection power in your life is our empowerment to love. And so then let me just ask, let's just apply it. Then how do I grow in this love? First thing I would say to you, first practical thing I would give to you is change the narrative. Change the narrative. When your heart wants to tell you a narrative of fear or rejection for being open about your own struggles or for reaching out to someone you don't know well, or your heart wants to tell you a narrative of thinking evil of someone else, interrupt that narrative with the story of the gospel. Don't just sit in a wailing boat imagining with your narrative of all the horrible things that could happen to me. All the horrible things this person must think or feel or so and so. Have you ever had someone walk by you, not greet you, and thought well I bet they just don't like me. Don't raise your hands. You were afraid in that moment of rejection and you judged them wrongly. I really don't even care what they think. I'm telling you, that was not divine love. Divine love would have said, walked up, "Hey, I'm so sorry. I just want to make sure I said hi to you. I love you." Anything going? On? Anything going on in your life I could pray about? We've all been there. I have been there. I do not say this to you in some judgmental harshness. I say this to you saying basically this. Get out of the wailing boat that's afraid of the cannibals and get in the boat with Jesus for love. And live in the truth. Interrupt the narrative with the story of the gospel where you are accepted in Christ by his love. You don't walk this earth for the acceptance of others. You walk for an audience of one. Listen, you are going to run into people on this planet that hate you just because they are hateful people. You're going, to walk this, you're going to run into people on in this planet that hate you, and you don't even know why they hate you. To this day, I don't know why Gilbert Letter put it in his heart and mind that he was going to hate my guts and make my life a living nightmare. I do not know. You're going to run into people like this. The pathway forward is not walking through life with your fists up, waiting to hit somebody who hits you, waiting to punch them first, or becoming a hermit. The path forward in life is being set free by the love of Christ that you're not here for that person's acceptance. You're not here for their approval ultimately. You're not here for their friendship. You are here on mission because Christ has accepted you. Christ has embraced you. Christ has set his affections on you. That's what throws the fear out the window. When your heart tells you a narrative fear of the future, of what will happen, Maybe you're the kind of person that gets very afraid of what's going to happen in your family, your church, your health, your finances, or your nation. Be reminded of the one who stands outside of time. And before you were ever born, had chosen you, died for you, set his love on you. He who has been faithful in the past will most surely be faithful in the future. If there's anybody that should not be controlled by narrative of fear about the future, it should be believers. Change the narrative from fear to rest in the unbelievably deep love of Christ. When you're struggling to do that, like Job is, that's the perfect time to own your fear to someone else and ask them to help you identify and think truth. Hey, could you help me? Could you preach some truth to my heart? Because I, I, here's my fears. And I'm wrestling here. Secondarily, move before you feel. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, The Problem of Pain. I quote, Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will the removal. Now That's a complex, uh, thank you C.S. Lewis, that's complex. This is what he's saying. Here I had somebody say, and I know, I listen, you tell me, and I know I'm about to jump on your branch. I'm about to step on some toes here. I'm just giving you a heads up for it. Just know, my toes are really sore. Right? Jesus already been on them before I got here. I'm with you, not against you. You ever said, I really love love them, I just really don't like them? Mm -hmm. Me too. I'm giving all these caveats right now because I don't want to be a hypocrite. Right? I love them, I just don't really like them. When I start wrestling through the text... I have to ask, is that how Jesus responds? And here's what's really terrifying. I act like that's how he sees me. Do You ever feel that way with God? I know God loves me. I just think he probably doesn't like me very much right now. Really? I wonder if that's true. What if it's not? I like how Alistair Groves he's a author and writer he tries to tackle that concept of us not feeling loving towards people like we know we love them but we don't really like them very much and then what do we do and how to respond to that and he directs our hearts and our attentions to matthew 23 matthew 23 and i don't have time this morning to read down through that text but it's where God, jesus gives seven woes to the pharisees what i mean by that he says things like woe to you blind guides woe to he calls them hypocrites something like it's either four or six times in that chapter I mean, Jesus is putting them on blast. It is one of those prophetic moments, get out the way, you feel like lightning's about to hit the earth. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, seven times. In other words, these are some incredibly unlikable people. We know know that he's loving them because he's speaking truth. We know that he loves them because he is love. He is the walking definition of love. But these are some of the most unlikable people, so how would he deal with them? How can you and I love someone like Jesus loves them when this person irritates, annoys, and even righteously angers us? Jesus says this at the end of Matthew 23. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. I was with my brother last week in Kentucky. His wife, uh, knows and understands farming to a great capacity. So here's my brother, grew up in Baltimore, and, and he's got this little hobby farm. It's pretty funny. Um, and so they've got these Bantam chickens. They're like mini chickens. And they're adorable, right? So have got all these chickens. They're great because they eat ticks, bugs, all this kind of stuff. And they've got um, what they call a, a brood hen. Now this, this hen with this little Bantam hen, she is like the, the mother of all mother chickens. She's amazing. And so she loves to raise to hatch eggs and raise chicks. That's what she loves to do. That just gets her juices flowing. She loves this. And so they actually got some um, some grouse eggs that have been hatched. And she's hatched these grouse. And these grouse are going to get way bigger than she And I'm there, and she is like the mother. You'd think they're hers. So like everywhere she goes, if you just find her... Uh, there's all these, they call her Henny Penny, is what they call her. Um, if you follow Henny Penny, you see all these little grouse, and she's teaching them, and she's guiding them, and she protects them. You better not go near them. She'll get all up in your business. She's, she's, she's like, she's fun to watch, right? Like, I'm city boy. I don't, I, I like to eat chicken, but I don't want to raise a chicken, right? Um, but that's what she is. And I read this text, and I think about the people who annoy me. You got some people that annoy you? I got people who annoy me, Right? Uh, people that irritate you the people that you are prone to say i love them i just don't really like them very much and the god of the universe the image he gives is his perspective towards these people is i would have gathered you under my wings drawn you close to me put myself at personal risk for you and treated you like my own children I think we need to stop saying, I love them, but I don't like them very much. Instead, we need to start living in the reality that our bent towards them needs to be one of a desire of tender, affectionate care, even as we're speaking truth to them. That's choosing to move before you feel it. And then thirdly and lastly, and we're all done, be burdened to show Christ. We live in an incredibly fearful time. Some of it's justified. Some of it's exaggerated by media outlets and personal fears. The problem is we feel sometimes like we're on a boat adrift in a sea of fear. We want love to write the story. We want love to write the narrative and not our fear. We want people to hear the story of the greatest love this world can ever know. The love of a Savior who died for them, who has come to rescue them and calls them to put His love on show. Christians who have lost their first love, have lost the burden for others to see and savor Christ. Do your children need to see Jesus? Do your friends and co-workers, how about your family, your extended family, your neighbors, how will they see Jesus? They don't need to see me. They don't need to see you. They need to see Jesus. And I want them to be filled with an awe of Christ. And you know how that will happen according to John by the love of Christ in us coming out of us. This is what he's saying. It would be so shocking. They would look at him and they'd be like, "Steve said that?" Man, that is so loving. That doesn't sound like Steve. That almost sounds like Jesus. Wow, if Steve could if Steve Steve did that, that is a very sacrificial thing to do. That does not accord with who I know him to be. I'm picking on myself because, folks, I'm so convicted that I don't want to be Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. And I realize as long as I live in a narrative of fear, I can never love people like Jesus, and what they need is Christ. They need Jesus. Jesus. And what he's telling us is it's so transformational, it's so impacting, it will explode people's minds and brains, it will perfect and mature this love cycle so that as people see it and they hear it and they know it from you, they begin to see and hear and know Jesus. And they want him. Because where fear is tormenting, love is attractive. By this shall all men know you're my disciples, by the love you have for one another. We will head back to Job, but I wanted us to step away to consider the fears of our own lives and hearts as we are on mission for God.